Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Is it possible for a computer to be creative? A UK computer scientist thinks so. He's created software called The Painting Fool to change perceptions on creativity. We'll talk to him later in the show as we explore automation, whether it's in a studio or a factory. Coming up, we look at how one country, Sweden, is reacting to automation. Is it really accurate to view this trend as a job killer? We want to hear from you this hour. Join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Email where we live at WMPR.org. And as always, find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Now, economist Morten Blix will join us from Sweden with his perspective coming up later. First, Stanley Black & Decker Incorporated has longtime roots in Connecticut. Stanley Works began in New Britain in the 1800s. In 2010, the Connecticut company merged with Black & Decker. Today, the company makes thousands of tools. Chances are you have one of them in your house or garage. Manufacturing can't remain competitive without innovating. Starting this year, Stanley Black & Decker will open an advanced manufacturing center in downtown Hartford. Why now? Joining us to explain is Sudi Bangalore, vice president of Industry 4.0 at Stanley Black & Decker and head of the company's new Manufactory 4.0 in Hartford. Sudi, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. I should also say welcome to Connecticut. You're making the move. (laughs) We like to hear that, uh, Sudi. You'll find out why in a few uh, months as you get situated (laughs) in Connecticut as we talk a lot about people moving in and out of the state. Now, tell us about your job and what you'll be doing at Stanley Black & Decker. Yes, um, my job is essentially to shepherd the transformation we've already started at uh, Stanley in terms of, you know, truly embracing Industry 4.0. Uh, we have taken steps to uh, to start the process with a few lighthouse plans, we call them, and we've already started seeing the results of that effort in terms of taking automation to the next level. You mentioned Industry 4.0. For our listeners who don't know what this term is, what are you talking about? So uh, if you look at, let's let's talk about Industry 3.0 and jump into 4.0. So if you look at Industry 4.0, it was about automation. Um, bringing computers, dedicated computers, it could be called PLCs, DCS, so on, it doesn't matter, but it was about doing a task efficiently. But then what happened was those tasks got separated into islands of automation, I called it. I call it. So in Industry 4.0, what we do is we take those islands of automation and we not only connect those islands of automation, but some, bring some intelligence into how we connect these islands. So when we now take an order from a customer, such as Lowe's or Home Depot or what Stanley, then Everything from that point on to the point that we actually make the tool is all connected. And it's intelligent in terms of understanding what's going right, what's going wrong, so we can actually react to it almost real time. So that, in a nutshell, is in one aspect of Industry 4.0. So it's merging automation, which, which has been around in manufacturing for a, a couple of decades now, and, and expanding that into digital technology? Absolutely. So this whole connectedness is, is also digital, you know. Uh, and then there's data involved, there's analytics involved. 
but the point of it is now you have contextual intelligence so you can react to it. And most important, you can bring all of the parties involved, whether it's the customer ordering the part or the, or the manufacturing plant making it and the shipping organization shipping it and the service organization service, servicing that product. They're all connected and they're all in, in context and in concert to where they are in that whole process. I mentioned uh, in my intro that uh, we're in the fourth industrial revolution. Um, explain to us, give us a little bit of a timeline and history of the, the different industrial revolutions that we have seen in the world and how we got to this point. Yeah, so if you really look at the first uh, generation of, of automation, it was uh, leveraging and harnessing the steam and the mechanical uh, and electric power uh, to make something um, in, in, in a more efficient manner, right? And then when you started doing that, now, especially in the textile industry, so when you started doing that, instead of having these little looms in, in, in homes and, and, and cottages and so on, it turned out, to, you know, it, it became uh, progressed into a factory-like environment. So that was the first generation. And the second generation was all about the assembly and and the and the and the process of dividing labor and to do something very efficiently so more people can buy it and of course that's the model T Ford story right and the third generation as i said and that was in you know around the you know 1930s 1970s right and then uh, 90 excuse me 1870s and then in the 1970s is when the third generation kicked in and that is when uh, you you truly started using you know automation etc as i said and then went on all the way to maybe 2000, even to 2005. And now the fourth generation has started. Uh, I mentioned that you are heading up this advanced manufacturing center uh, in downtown Hartford. We're going to learn a little bit about that in just a few minutes. But when we look at the company, um, Stanley Black & Decker, um, so our listeners can understand when we're thinking about a tool that this company had made 40 years ago and how, how making that has changed in, in now 2018. Can you walk us through that process? Sure. Um, you know, uh, first of all, the tool itself um, has become more intelligent, <laughs> right? So what used to be a, a hulk of metal uh, has now got so much more advanced uh, in terms of its own capabilities, right? So now you have electronics, and now you have its own connectivity to its ecosystem, so you have multiple tools talking to one another. So the tool itself has changed dramatically. And the way it's made, obviously, has changed. Um, so what has, uh, when we started embracing automation from the first manufactory that, that, that started 100, 100 plus years ago, um, we have embraced automation. And now we're, when we have embraced automation, uh, most of the automation that has been embraced hasn't, hasn't been, has been in tune with where the business has been. So the latest strategy for us is make where you sell, right? And this now has become uh, the big philosophy for most companies, but we started doing this about three, four years back at Stanley, and it's already started paying huge dividends with that strategy. So most of what we make, and that's the, that's the reason why we've been able to bring uh, manufacturing back from other parts of the world, like China and Mexico, et cetera. So we're building several plants here in the States. And one of the fundamental reasons why we're, we're doing it, it makes tremendous business sense. And when you're doing that, you're bringing more growth. And obviously, when you have more growth, there's tremendous amount of employment opportunities and other opportunities that get created for our employees. 
So that in a nutshell is sort of, you know, how we've been looking at automation and its value uh, for, for, for us in terms of serving our customers locally. This is where we live. Uh, today I'm talking with Sudi Bangalore, Vice President of Industry 4.0 at Stanley Black & Decker and head of the company's new Manufactory 4.0 in Hartford. We're looking at automation. It's actually our second Where We Live that we're dedicating to this, this topic. Uh, and Sudi, I, I also want to tell our listeners that they have a question or comment about uh, automation and what it means and how they view it as we move forward again uh, in 2018. The number 860-275-7266. Uh, Sudi, when people hear about automation, they do think of the jobs that people that have been displaced because mm-hmm. of automation over the last few decades. So um, what can you tell people about that and you know, how many actual people are working for Stanley Black & Decker making these tools even though that you have embraced automation? Yeah, so actually we have over uh, 40,000 people working um, in, in manufacturing, you know, if you're a manufacturing company. Now, the topic of jobs, if you really look at jobs, um, it gets created when there's economic growth. And then that happens, if you look at the last 150 years, every 50 years, whether there's a second revolution or the third revolution and now the fourth, uh, productivity has been the primary factor that has created growth, right? Um, so now, what we're seeing is uh, the, the business of... Um, the business of uh, productivity has to be focused in, in manufacturing. Uh, and it has to be not just a, uh, I call it, raging incremental philosophy, but something meaningful. And that's one of the things that, that we're trying uh, with, 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 these, um, with these philosophies. So when you do that, uh, when you actually grow the pie itself, then the opportunities get created in terms of jobs. But then if you look at the history of, let's take uh, ATMs, for example. Uh, when ATMs got introduced, most people thought there will be less jobs. But if you really look at it, it, almost three times the number of banking jobs got created because of ATMs. But initially, the, the, the fundamental philosophy was, oh my goodness, we're going to lose all kinds of jobs. It's been the same thing in most of these revolutions. The thing that we're looking for is, how do you drive productivity? And when you, when you inject this productivity in the economy, amazing things happen in terms of us creating jobs. And we're seeing that in Stanley. We've created jobs in Charlotte. Uh, we'll be creating jobs in Charlotte and Texas and, and Michigan and so on and so forth. So uh, that is the larger philosophy one has to look at as opposed to the incremental displacement that could happen with some of these automation technologies. So part of this advanced manufacturing center that Stanley Black & Decker is hoping to open mid-year 2018, focusing on retraining the local workforce to, to be able to do these, these new jobs? Absolutely. And not only that, it's, um, if you look at most of retraining that's happening in manufacturing, there's been a tremendous focus, obviously, uh, about manufacturing and its, and its potential impact, Right. Um, training is an important thing, but one thing that I see that training is missing mm-hmm. is the connectedness to real-life problems, right, that, that, that manufacturers see. And that's the piece that we're going to address with the manufacturer. So a lot of the training that we'll do, it's going to be in concert with the real problems that manufacturing companies are facing, that we're facing at Stanley and our peers here in the Hartford area and other parts of the country and the world, we're going to bring those real problems and then use those real problems and train them, train the people 
with technology to solve those real problems. That's going to be one of the fundamental differences that we will, uh, that we will inject into our philosophy of retraining people. The challenge is finding that, that skilled workforce to do these new jobs. Yes, yes. And you know, here's another, my philosophy of it. If you think about Connecticut, one of the things about Connecticut is it's been one of the earliest adopters of manufacturing. So you have trem- a tremendous amount of uh, artmanship or artisanship, if you will, in the business of manufacturing. And there are lots of those tradesmen who are still very active. So my thinking is we need to bring them into the fore and, and leverage that expertise they have and convert that into what we call as algorithms or digital signatures, if you will. So it's not lost. And then on, that, on the other end of the spectrum, it's to attract the younger talent because they've been told manufacturing is gone, right? It has mm-hmm. gone to China. Guess what? It's not gone to China anymore. It's coming back because it makes sense, as I said, to, to do it locally, the manufacturing locally. Mm-hmm. So to me, it's important to address both ends of the spectrum. Uh, The older generation or the generation that has tremendous skills hands-on and the younger generation who are very skeptical about manufacturing. They think it's, you know, clunky, it is old, it's dirty. It's not. It's changing. But you come uh, originally from India. Yes. You know that math and science skills in this country, we lag behind so many other countries, not just getting young people interested in manufacturing, but under, understanding the basics to sure. get to that type of job. So how does Stanley Black & Decker hope to reach uh, that those young people, not just the ones in college that are maybe showing interest, but back in third, fourth grade, you know, the capital city in Hartford, um, the achievement gap uh, in the state um, is, is high when you compare it to the suburbs, um, the the, the standard of uh, level of achievement in math and science is lower than other parts of the state. These are real challenges, and I'm just curious how companies um, are talking about that. Yeah, you know, and, and it's a great point, and I have um, heard about some of the experiments that are happening across the country in terms of attracting younger, um, younger you know, uh, students, uh, especially in high school. So the first thing is to show uh, show these kids what's possible in manufacturing, right? Uh, and the and the phenomenal opportunities there are in manufacturing. So I think showing is the first step. So for example, if you can do all of these PTO types of activities in, in, in schools that happen across the country, why not do it in some of our factories, right? We've already started thinking about that. And so when you come in, into a factory and you see it live and you see the opportunities that manufacturing presents, and, and combine it with a very focused curriculum around manufacturing, maybe it is, it's, if you really think about it, one of the best examples you have is Germany. Uh, the investment they made about 15 years back is paying off in spades. And why? Because it is very focused vocational training and it is driven by real live use cases of, of, of manufacturing. So it's our hope uh, and, and, and uh, opportunity for us to do things like that, is to get creative, is to kind of you know go beyond the traditional methods of training and to use technology to do training. You mentioned technology. So uh, at the manufacturing center that's opening later this year, what specific types of technology will you be experimenting with and bringing in certain companies? Uh, I'm curious about with the additive manufacturing especially. Yeah, you know, that's a fantastic uh, point you bring. If you think about additive manufacturing, um, it's, it's basically 3D printing, but it's, it's a lot more than 3D printing, right? And then the, the beauty about 3D printing is with most technologies, the price point has come, you know, has come down dramatically. 
And for those of the, list, of the listeners who don't know much about 3D printing, it's, it's just what it says. It's printing, except it's 3D, and it used to be more plastic in nature. It was easy to do, but now you can add metal and plastic and other composite materials. So long story short, if you have five or six different parts that make up a, you know, um, six different uh, components that make up a part, now you, you can combine all of that and you can do it locally and you can do it at a fraction of a cost. In fact, I was having a conversation with some of my colleagues yesterday who are doing some of these things in, in uh, Maryland and along with a, with a local university there. And it was phenomenal. The kind of cost savings you have is north of 45 to 50%. The weight of these products have come down by almost 65%. So it is, and, and then obviously you can do it locally. For example, if you have a spare part that needs to be done uh, or produced in Ohio, you can now have these units sitting in Ohio. So there's a tremendous amount of savings that happen and now all the shipping costs that is reduced. So all in all, it's a good thing. So that's going to be one of the legs that we will embrace heavily in the center, along with, of course, everything to do with data and everything to do with analytics and 3D uh, virtual reality. And, and uh, also most important is robotics. I mean, uh, robotics is, 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 is people look at it with, with a high level of skepticism and concern, but it's not. If you really go back to my original point about driving productivity, and 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 it, now there's a concept called co-optive robotics, right? So which is really a working, you know, hand in hand with humans, and that is where the opportunities are, where you can truly go beyond the five, seven percent productivity you have, north of maybe fifteen or twenty in the next maybe ten years. That's what people are projecting. You mentioned uh, virtual reality uh, technology. Uh, why is that relevant for manufacturing? How are you using that to train these new workers? Oh, great point again. Uh, see, if you think about virtual reality uh, or augmented reality, so now not only can you see details uh, that you would, may not have seen to try, let's just say, solve a problem, right? So let's just say you have a mixer that's making soup. <laughs> and it's, we don't make soup at standing, but I'm just trying to give you an example <laughs> to make it a little more vivid, right? So if you're doing that, and let's just say the output of that mixer is not very uh, good for this particular batch. Now, if, you're, if you are a food science person, you can put on that process hat and walk into that mixer to see what really is wrong with this particular batch, right? And then you can have another person who is a maintenance person for that mixer walk into that mixer virtually, right, and see what's wrong with the motors that's turning that mixer. So simply put, what's cool about that is now if you can, so if you can have multiple people walk into this with different perspective, you can, the opportunity is to solve the problem a lot more efficiently. And we want to take that technology to train people. So now if you're a maintenance person, we're going to train that maintenance person using this technology in the manufacturing and in the Stanley factories. So that is where the opportunity is. Now you can see details that you are not able to see, you know, traditionally. And you would have to go look at manuals. You would have to call people. Now everything is encapsulated in this, in this technology of, of virtual reality or augmented reality and so on. 
This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. I'm talking with Sudi Bangalore, Vice President of Industry 4.0 at Stanley Black & Decker, head of the company's new manufactory, manufactory rather, 4.0 in Hartford. It's an advanced manufacturing center to open in downtown Hartford later this year. Now, we've learned about this fourth industrial revolution known as Industry 4.0, a time when the manufacturing trends and others are geared towards automation and digital technology. How is this view, trend being viewed abroad? Now, Sudi will stay with us after the break. We're going to also talk with an economist from Sweden about automation in his country. And we want to hear from you, too. Do you work for a place that uses automation? Join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. When you think of automation, what comes to mind? This Christmas, a robot joined our household. We call it Caboose. It's one of those robotic vacuums. Now, in a house with two kids, two cats, and a dog, Caboose has been a welcome addition. Now, kidding aside, depending on your job, are you concerned about how the trend towards automation and digital technology could impact your line of work? You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Today with me is Sudi Bangalore, Vice President of Industry 4.0 at Stanley Black & Decker and head of the company's new Manufactory 4.0 in Hartford. And joining us now by phone from Sweden is Morten Blix, a research fellow at the Research Institute of Industrial Economics in Stockholm. Morten, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks. Now, earlier we were talking with Sudi. He's explaining about uh, how we are in this fourth industrial revolution. You're an economist. Uh, when you look back at uh, the previous revolutions, um, what what do you draw from them in, t- in terms of understanding how we will be moving forward um, in terms of job prospects, uh, new job prospects for people? Well, uh, I think the points that you discussed earlier were, were quite good. I mean, we're seeing all these benefits uh, in manufacturing. We're seeing a lot of consumer benefits, uh, things are improving. But uh, I think what's worrying a lot of people is is the adjustment period in, in the labor market. I mean, what, what kind of changes uh, do people have to make in order to cope uh, when things are moving very fast? So those are some issues that I've been working on. Uh, and in particular, there's a concern that we're seeing a kind of polarization uh, where the middle class, is thinning out, and that's happening uh, in most countries, not all countries, but most countries. So you're seeing uh, people moving down the skills ladder, if you like, and other people moving up. Uh, And we're also concerned about uh, wage growth, which has been uh, stagnant in some countries. It's been uh, in decline in the U.S. for a number of years, but also in in the economy as a whole in, in in the world. Many countries are experiencing uh, slower wage growth. So I think uh, we're, we're looking towards the period of adjustment uh, and how to cope with that adjustment. In Sweden, how has automation and digital technology been embraced? Obviously, uh, your country are very different from the United States in terms of the middle class, um, the wages that are paid, the safety net that uh, Sweden has uh, that um, the U.S. does not. <laughs> I'm just curious how automation has been, has been accepted or embraced by, by your residents. Well, uh, people here tend to be rather positive towards technology. Uh, I mean, like all countries, we had uh, tough periods where some sectors have been in decline. Uh, shipbuilding, for example, has been has been uh, disappeared essentially. 
but the, the kind of, you mentioned the, the safety net. We have a, a general safety net, but there's also a lot of focus on on skills and, and retraining. So uh, you know, you could you could the slogan could be that we protect the worker, we don't protect the job. So in some countries, for example, in, in Germany, you might want uh, when there's uh, sluggish growth, uh, they might want to cut the hours or cut the wages in order to protect the jobs. Uh, here, the tendency would be not to do that, but instead to uh, try to move on and uh, so maybe the factory would close and then uh, work with retraining and try to help the workers to, to find new opportunities elsewhere. And th- that's been a kind of successful model and it requires uh, the retraining and it requires support and, and, and some other elements, but it's, it's something that other countries could think about and. Uh, probably would be important as the skills will be an essential component of uh, of the labor market as we go forward. Uh, Sudi Bangalore is in studio with me. Uh, you were nodding your head uh, when Morton uh, mentioned that slogan of protecting the work or not the job. In this country, the emphasis is always on the job, uh, especially politicians will, will make promises. We're going to bring the jobs back. We're going to bring the jobs back. <laughs> uh, a, a bad mistake, Sudi. Uh, absolutely. I think so. I think uh, the focus should be on the bigger picture. And the focus should be on uh, all the things we're talking about is to ensuring that there is a, there is a uh, important point about uh, how do you, whether it is, it doesn't always have to be, you know, a four-year degree, but how do you skill these people? And it has to be a meaningful skilling. And if you can do that and, and protect the worker, from that perspective, that's that's the way one should look at it. In in uh, this country, especially even in Connecticut, we hear about these uh, these job training programs, but it really is on a case by case or maybe a specific collaboration between one university and one company. Um, more to, in Sweden, is it more the government's taking the approach that uh, retraining of workers is a priority? Is there more? Is it more collaborative? Uh, in in Sweden, it's it's more up to the labor market partners, the, the the trade unions and the employer organizations. They have established these kind of funds that go in and support workers that have to be that have to uh, get new skills. But I, I guess for other countries, the exact institutional arrangement is is not important. I think what matters is that uh, when you have this big shock and there's a need to to upgrade skills that there's some ways of financing it and, and some ways of, of supporting it. Uh, and I think what we're seeing, I mean, there's been this discussion about will, you know, 50% of the jobs disappear in the next decade or so. Well, jobs are always disappearing. I mean, the labor market is, is always destroying jobs and it's creating new ones. Uh, but the new ones uh, often tend to uh, require a higher level of skills. So if people have been working, for example, in manufacturing, if they've been doing kind of the same work for a long period of time, sort of repetitive, week in, week out, and then suddenly uh, this job disappears and and the new job might be handling a a robot or some other more sophisticated piece of equipment, well, that's a big step to take. Uh, So uh, somebody who's thrown out in the labor market, uh, having not upgraded their skills for a long time, well, that's going to be tough, essentially. Um, Sudi. Yeah. uh, Would you, Martin, say that it's not always upgrading your skills? Sometimes it's looking at skills in a different way, right? 
you might be, as you were saying, doing a repetitive job, but now it might have to be more of a collaborative job. Uh, so a difference, it would require a different kind of skill. So to me, it's what it does sometimes, most times mean upgrading of skills, but a lot of times it could also mean thinking different and thinking about the job different because it's, it, it's tending to be a lot more collaborative because you'll have to do three different types of jobs in manufacturing when we were previously doing one kind of job, which was maybe just testing or maybe just do assembling. Uh, go ahead. Uh, did you want to respond, uh, Morton, before I, I move on? I, I, well, I mean, I'm, I'm sure that's right. Uh, but the overall trend I think we have is that uh, the serv- service sector that's uh, increasing in, in most countries, and it's been increasing over a long period of time, uh, manufacturing is becoming more and more productive and it requires uh, fewer workers to do the same thing. So really, I think a lot of interest should be in, in, in services, in, in sales and in software services and various support functions. Uh, that, that's where there are a lot of job changes going on. For example, in banking, we're seeing uh, automated advice. Previously, you used to could go into to your local bank and get some financial advice and savings, etc. Now, these kind of things are increasingly being able to be put online, uh, and people. So, so, the kind of job giving that advice is also gradually being put uh, under pressure. So, ser- services are are uh, that's a, a big change, I think, compared to previous uh, periods of of, uh, uh, of uh, automation. This is where we live today. We're talking about automation, uh, getting a global perspective. On the phone with us from Sweden, Morten Blix, Research Fellow at the Research Institute of Industrial Economics in Stockholm. In studio with me, Sudi Bangalore, Vice President of Industry 4.0 at Stanley Black & Decker. It's a company based in New Britain, Connecticut, head of the company's new Manufactory 4.0 in Hartford. Now, Morten, you mentioned uh, a different uh, industries. What about the creative industry, and how is automation shaking that up? Well, uh, it, it's certainly affecting, uh, well, journalism for a long time, uh, writing texts. We used to think that writing texts was something that only humans could do. But now uh, a lot of text is being automated. Uh, co- corporate reporting, sport events, even books are being written. And there are these uh, tests. That blind test that uh, try to see uh, if there's a difference, if you can tell the difference between an automated text and one that's written by a human. And it turns out to be very hard now to, to distinguish. Uh, so that means, I, I think, the same kind of thing that happened in other areas, we're seeing this polarization where, like those are really good, uh, they can uh, increase the work, they can get higher wages. But if you're doing sort of regular work, then uh, that, that's a competition with the robots. Uh, so that's something that's been going on for a long time. Other, other creative areas, I, I think it's coming, and we're seeing uh, computers that are composing music and other forms of art. Uh, it's a little bit early days, I would say, to, to, uh, to know what effects those are, but, but certainly uh, creativity, I mean, we don't exactly know what creativity is. We can't really define it, and that means that also, uh, you know, you can have computers that, that aid in, in creativity, and it's hard to tell the difference. But I think it's early days to see uh, what the impact will be on the creative uh, industries. I, I think from, from the research point of view, uh, the conclusion is often that uh, creative work is, is usually more safe from automation. 
but you know that's an assumption that uh, that may not turn out to be true. Like I said, but it's early days. Um, you're doing a good job uh, for promoting to our next segment, uh, Morton, where we're going to be speaking <laughs> with a, a, U, U, a, a computer scientist from the UK who's created a software program that does paintings, portraitures, uh, and uh, he's challenging these perceptions of what makes uh, what makes something be creative. We're going to talk with him in just a few minutes. Uh, but I wanted to get back to, again, this uh, the thought uh, dealing with uh, these jobs that become workers that do become displaced. Uh, but in the long run, um, you know, there is fear that uh, not as many jobs that are um, being eliminated for these new opportunities will come back into the market. Um, how should uh, how should people feel about those trends, Morton, um, and the impact on the economies? Is it just that these other jobs will be becoming more apparent in different uh, industries, maybe not specifically in the ones that the jobs have been lost in? Well, I mean, first of all, I think we should not be worried uh, yet that, you know, jobs are going to disappear. I mean, this sort of very dark uh, visions of the future that that no jobs or computers will do everything. But having having said that, I mean, this transformation is, is it will be quite tough uh, for some people, especially in rural areas, let's say uh, cities where you know, one manufacturer is a very dominant force, and then there's a big shock to, to, to this production. So even though over a longer period of time, the economy will probably do very well and the labor market will recover, that might not be so helpful for those who, who are affected. And we know this from the past, that uh, these kind of events can be very disruptive. And it's, it will be hard for, for, some, uh, for some groups. Uh, I, I recently attended a, a workshop on uh, automation of, of trucks uh, in, in, in Washington a few, a few months ago. I mean, uh, we're talking about uh, trucks that could be self-driving, that maybe already are self-driving. Uh, and th- I mean, there's a lot of people that are truck drivers, and you know, what are they going to do if, if, the, if the trucks are self-driving? Well, you know, there's, there's no simple answer to that. Uh, some may have retraining, but uh, for others, it's going to be very difficult. Uh, we're also going to see automation probably in in, uh, uh, in, in, in cashiers, when in supermarkets. Uh, and here, uh, if you automate the, the, the process of, of selling things, that's going to affect a lot of lot more people without all these uh, legal hurdles that you see in, in for self-driving vehicles. So, I mean, I think overall the message is the, the retraining, but that's not going to help everybody. Uh, and, and I think another thing that, that the country needs to think about is the safety net that we discussed before, but also to have uh, to put a lot of emphasis on, on the education, on the general education. So there's research that shows from other countries that uh, a high uh, average level of education, so even the minimum and the average level of education, if they are high, that's, that will be helpful because that means that people will be more able to adjust. So let's say high school level. Uh, this is a key level to have uh, a proficient uh, high school education with, with, with uh, a good quality high school. That, that really matters a lot for, for the labor force uh, ability to, to adjust.
On the phone with me again, Morton Blix, Research Fellow at the Research Institute of Industrial Economics in Stockholm. In studio with me, Sudi Bangalore, who works uh, for Stanley Black & Decker here in New Britain, Vice President of Industry 4.0. I'm curious, you've spent some time in Scandinavia. Your impressions of uh, automation trends, uh, not just in manufacturing, but um, from different countries, what have you noticed in your career? Uh, I think the because of especially in in the nordics um i think the automation the, the topic of automation is viewed slightly differently as martin is 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 saying one is be, because of the types of industry mining uh and paper and pulp etc so their view of automation is to see how we can do a job better using technology so there's a concept and safer and safer the concept of remote factories has been there for almost a decade and a half. And that concept is now coming to the States. So from that perspective, I think, again, the big difference is uh, how do we do something more efficiently? Therefore, you can sell more. And when you sell more, there are more opportunities that get created. So from that perspective, I think their philosophy is a lot more grounded uh, than, than in the U.S., at least at this point in time. Uh, what about uh, countries that have emerging economies uh, like India yeah. and how automation is being viewed there? <laughs> that's a great question. I think uh, there's a period of reckoning that's happening in India, right? So on one hand, you have all of this labor that is out there. On the other hand, you know all of that labor is not efficiently being utilized, almost to the factor of maybe one to three. Uh, so, uh, but, but the good thing is the government has recognized it. And so there is a equal amount of emphasis on making sure that the the uh, worker is protected, uh, as well as ensuring that you're still promoting technology in the right sectors in the right segments. So I think from that perspective, both Korea um, and India are doing something right, and including China for that for that matter. So I think it is it is a well you know well thought out process at least at the outset. It seems that way. Uh, Morton, before we head to break, I understand you writing a book about uh, automation, digitalization. Um, what are some takeaways and how countries should be looking at this trend? It's not going away. <laughs> well, we, we talked about automation. The other big trend uh, in, for, in digitalization is, is uh, the rise of, of gig works. Uh, these uh, platforms like Uber that is transforming the nature of work uh, people talk a lot about Uber, but it's it's not just Uber. It's also qualified work where you can find uh, workers throughout the whole world uh, essentially doing anything that can be done on a computer, like uh, writing text or, or web design or anything essentially that can be done on a computer is work that can be outsourced uh, on, on these platforms. So, you know, for example, uh, Upwork is a platform where you have like 12 million workers globally. So you can sit in in the U.S. somewhere and you can order work from somebody in Sri Lanka or India uh, just by pressing a button. Uh, And this is also sort of cutting through uh, a lot of the way that the the labor markets have been working in the past with the institutions, with the safety nets, uh, and especially, of course, with taxation. So the rise of these platforms is, uh, is, is, is raising important issues for not just the labor market uh, and bypassing uh, a lot of the usual arrangements, but also for the taxation authorities. I mean, if you, can, if you can buy sophisticated work somewhere else at a very low price and not pay tax, 
uh, that that's uh, going to be a difficult uh, thing for for governments that are financing uh, welfare services. We're going to have to leave it there. Morten Blix, research fellow at the Research Institute of Industrial Economics in Stockholm. Thank you so much for joining us today. We appreciate it. Thank you. Also, thanks to Sudi Bangalore, Vice President of Industry 4.0 at Stanley Black & Decker in New Britain, head of the company's new Manufactory 4.0. That's coming uh, later this year in downtown Hartford. So nice to talk with you, Sudi. We appreciate it. Same here. Enjoyed it. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We've been talking about advances in manufacturing, especially automation. Coming up next, we find out whether a computer program can be creative on its own. The creator of the software program, The Painting Fool, thinks so. We'll talk with him after the break, and we'll take your questions, too. Join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Are you an artist? In terms of our discussion today, how concerned are you about automation crossing all industries, including the arts? And creative jobs are generally considered to be immune from automation. Is that really true? Can computers or software really replace an actual person when it comes to being creative? Now, in recent years, there have been reports of robot artists that have been successful copying works of art. My next guest created a software program that paints based on a mood. How's that possible? Joining us now is Simon Colton, professor of digital games technology at Falmouth University, professor of computational creativity at Goldsmith College, University of London. Simon, welcome to the show. Hi, nice to speak. Now, I understand you designed this computer program that makes art. It's called The Painting Fool. Where did the idea come from, and, and how does it work? Oh, well, um, like many people many years ago, 15, 16 years ago, I got my first digital camera, and I went crazy taking photographs. Um, realized I wanted them to be a bit more artistic. Um, and because I'm a programmer, I thought, well, I can just write some graphics code for this. Um, and then uh, the, the software started from that, basically, to try and make um, better photos from my own collection, um, doing a little bit more artistic um, rendition than, than Photoshop. Um, and then I realized later on that I was spending more time on this graphics software than on my day job, which was researching creativity in other areas. Um, so I decided to... Um, initiate the painting for uh, project and came up with this stated aim that um, the the aim of the software is to be taken seriously as an artist in its own right um, one day a creative artist in its own right one day um, and it's been a, an odyssey of about 15 or 16 years to give the software more artificial intelligence uh, more graphics more natural language processing and machine vision um, so it's at the state where it is at now where I'm prepared under certain circumstances to call it creative, although not very creative. Um, and I'm prepared to call it an artist, but not a very good artist. Um, <laughs> now, um, I, now uh, Simon, sorry, we're yeah. a little short on, on time, but um, this is sure. not a robot holding a paintbrush. So explain to us how you get the painting fool to come up with a portrait. Well, sure, it's got many routes through the software, but the one we're talking about is it starts by reading the newspaper, uh, The Guardian in the UK, which is quite left-wing. Um, <laughs> and uh, and what well, fits with my particular tendencies. And it will pick out um, article after article after article um, using key phrases to cross-reference them and get a general mood for what it's reading. Um, and if that mood is very positive, it will attempt to produce a positive, happy portrait and if it's negative, we'll try to do the opposite. Um, and that 
choice um, of mood dictates all of its artistic choices from there on. So the first thing we'll do is ask the sitter to um, pull a particular pose, whether it's a, a smile for a happy painting or a frown for a sad painting. Um, then it will choose um, a particular um, image uh, filtering style. It will put into the background a particular abstract artwork that it's also created, which is also chosen to fit the mood. Um, and then it will choose one of the seven different painting styles, which it knows is slightly more better, slightly better than the others to achieve that mood. Um, and then it paints a picture in my hand um, with my best um, shirt and cufflinks, appears on screen um, and paints a picture. And it can take one minute if it's pastels and very sketchy, or it can take 20 minutes if it's a carefully thought out um, painting with um, simulated acrylics. Um, and then uh, at the end, after it's produced the painting, it uses machine vision to see whether it's achieved what it wants to achieve. Has it achieved that level uh, of mood? Um, and then it learns from the process. Um, if it's succeeded, it remembers that, and that particular process has more chance of being used in the future. If it um, has failed, then it, de it downgrades that chance um, for the process in the future. So it's constantly learning to be better at using its own tools to express a mood that it gets from the newspaper. Uh, so you're trying to show that uh, this program can itself be creative like a human. What kind of pushback have you gotten from that? Well, it was um, this particular project was um, within the Painting Pool um, was um, in response to pushback that I got, um, which was about intentionality. People would say to me, your software can't be creative because it, it doesn't intend to do anything. All the intention comes from you. And that was a fair point. Um, and then with this whole project, I try and point out that I had no idea what it would be reading in the newspaper. I had no idea what media it would put in and what artistic choices it would make. I had no idea what it would um, think about its own painting um, or what it would learn from the process. So basically, on any one painting, I don't intend for the software to do anything. Yet there is intentionality which comes through the painting um, and the intention to actually portray a mood. So I then challenge people uh, with this pushback. Does this software now show some level, however small, of intentionality? And some people say yes and some people waver. Um, and it's, that's how the, the, the painting pool has progressed, actually. Well-meaning, um, carefully thought out criticisms of it, why it can't be created, and then I go away and 10,000 lines of code later and a year later, I'll come back and I'll say, well, does this software now address your criticisms? Um, and one by one, I'm kind of knocking these um, obstacles down. And hopefully one day people will begrudgingly say the painting pool is created because they can't think of a good reason why it isn't created. <laughs> Now, um, my producer, Carmen Baskoff, convinced me to have your computer program, The Painting Fool, make two portraits of me. We're going to tweet those out at where we live. For those of us, uh, for those people listening on the radio, describe the one that said the, the program was in a bloody, it wanted to make a bloody portrait. I mean, <laughs> what article did yeah. it read before, uh, <laughs> before attempting that one, Simon? <laughs> Oh, I'm afraid I didn't check the articles, actually. Um, I, I, I can. I can interrogate them. What I'm keen on is the software is completely accountable. It doesn't have to be mysterious, like people are mysterious in their motivation. And so I could have checked them out, but it's normally things like earthquakes, um, uh, people losing jobs, bad things happen, death, murder. Um, that's what normally puts it in a bad mood. It uses natural language processing to do that. Um, and then it uses that mood, that simulated mood, to choose uh, one or two particularly negative um, adjectives and in this case it was bloody and if you're looking at the painting you'll see that it chose to put your face onto a, a very red background and then make your face and your whole body red um, which gave it the look of, uh, of a bloody portrait uh, and then he tried to um, achieve the same level but using these crazy instruments called pencils and pastels and paints 
Um, and as a result, it's not quite captured the same level of bloodiness in its portrait of you that it wanted to. Um, so it, it, it showboats a bit by saying it's a bit annoyed about that. Um, but what it's really done is, um, is record that for later reference to realise that maybe that particular painting style isn't the best to achieve that adjective. So at this point of your project gaming, working on it for years, uh, still humans, uh, more creative, more talented than the painting fool? More human than the painting fool would be my answer to that. Um, <laughs> I don't think we're ever going to replace um, people because um, what, what computational creativity um, is, is showing us more and more is that creativity and humanity are, are incredibly closely intertwined. And in many respects, um, creativity is a celebration of human community. And you start thinking, I've, I've written philosophical papers about computer-generated poetry, for example. And if a, if a piece of software writes a poem about childbirth, um, and you, then you realize it's by software, you kind of think, well, where's the authenticity there? And you, eventually, some people like me begin to realize that they don't, that poems shouldn't be written by software. They're, they're by people, about people, for people. Um, and there needs to be a guiding human um, element to this. So what I really think is that computers getting more and more creative will enable more people to get a slice of creativity because it's not available to all. Um, most people haven't had their portrait painted, for example. And through this process, which is normally kind of an interactive, you sit down, you, you sit with the software for 15, 20 minutes, more of a quite uh, a nice experience than um, just an image. Um, more people will realize that they, they actually want a real portrait done by a human artist. And if, if my, the, the software's done about 1,000 portraits now, it's just one of those people has gone off and bought themselves or bought a friend a, a real portrait, then I think this has helped um, the creative artists um, out there to, in, their, in their jobs. I don't think there's any challenge there because of the humanity um, mm. aspect of creativity. Well, I have to say, looking at both portraits that the painting fool did of me, uh, I wouldn't have been able to make this portrait, so... <laughs> well, neither would I. It's already exceeded its, its uh, teacher's um, expectations, really. Um, which is what I'm, I'm in it for, actually. And actually, the, um, the Penny Fool is embarking this month, actually, on a year-long artist-in-residency artist project at a, at a science centre in Cardiff. Um, and I'm, I'm giving it the ability to transform the way it does things slowly but surely over the year. So not only by the end of the year will it still be producing things that you or I couldn't produce, but it'll be even producing things that you and I couldn't even think of producing. That's the aim anyway. We'll have to so leave we'll it... innovate in its own process. We have to leave it there. Simon Colton, thank you so much. Again, Professor of Digital My Games second. Technology at Falmouth University. We're going to tweet out more information about The Painting Fool, including those uh, two portraits. Uh, <laughs> uh, thank you so much to producer Carmen Baskoff, technical producer Kion Wolf. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Thanks for listening.